Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bundjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I am super stoked about this next guest. He is the founding member and lead singer of the amazing band Everclear, who I just loved back in my younger days and still do. I was actually listening to you guys this morning. Uh, His name is Art Alexakis and he's been a sober man for 34, 35 years, which is absolutely awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. And yeah, how are you today? I'm doing wonderful. We got a day off. I'm in country, the uh, solo tour where I just go around and play my songs primarily Everclear songs, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Everclear was here last year in February. We had a great tour. It's just nice having a couple of days off, resting my voice a little bit, and thank you for asking me to be on this this uh, program because while I've been down here, I've been to two in-person meetings, one in Perth and one outside of Geelong, and uh going to try to go to an- another one in... Um, Newcastle. So it's really exciting to be able to meet other sober people, specifically men. I, I tend to do men's groups and uh, it's just wonderful being around sober guys who have got a lot of years of sobriety and come from different walks of life, but we all have a lot of things in common. Yeah, which is that want to be well and want to be uh, sober, which is awesome. Well, wanting to be sober, wanting to not just physically be sober off out and not drink alcohol or use alcohol or drugs. I was a drug addict and an alcoholic, but more importantly, to be mentally sober and be mentally focused and connected to my life. I say a higher power. Well, higher power doesn't necessarily mean God. I am the most not religious person, but because of my relationship and the, my fellowship, I become a very spiritual person, and that's helped my life. I know that you're a life coach. I'm a master life coach in, in three regimens, and one of them is sobriety. And I work with people in the creative industry as well. And that's one of the things that I work as a coach is to just work with people to set up a workable program outside of what, yeah, inside whatever they're using, you know, whether it's 12 step or some other system or or whatever, or just cold turkey. I help them work a way to find coachable goals to get through their sobriety, especially <laughs> musicians. It's it's a hard time being a, a drunk alcoholic musician to being a sober musician. 
Oh my gosh. I was just going to say what a great resource for other musicians, especially all well, younger and older ones. But I do get a lot of musicians on this show and it's so prevalent. It's so hard in the music industry because it's so everywhere. So what a great thing that you offer. And it would just, especially being a legendary musician yourself. So it gives people someone to look up to on multiple levels, which is fantastic. Tell me, uh, when did you start drinking? When did you first drink? Well, I remember my first sip of beer. I was either three or four. What? Well, I'm almost 62, so I'm a little older. Back in the 60s and 50s, you give your kid a little sip of beer or whatever. I mean, people used to give kids a little bit of whiskey if they had a cold. Yeah. And my mom was a country girl. Even though we we're living in the city, she's married to my dad, who's Greek. She's kind of she's kind of a hillbilly. And uh, I remember her giving me a little sip off her beer. And most kids would like screw their face up and wouldn't like it. It tasted like candy to me. And I felt I remember feeling the burn, the buzz. And as I got older, I would like sneak drinks off people's drinks, like my family, go over to friends' house, their parents. And there was a lot more prevalent drinking back then in the sixties, drinking and smoking. Right, everybody smoked. I remember as a kid between the ages of four, five, six, seven, eight, right in there, I loved that burn, and it made me feel comfortable in my own skin. I couldn't articulate this at the time, but I remember if I explained it to someone, I would tell them it made me happy, like really happy. And I've never been like that. A quick fast forward about 15 years ago, long time sober, I had real bad sciatica issues. I went to the emergency room in the middle of the night and my wife came in with our daughter before they went to school so I could kiss her goodbye and I'm laying on a stretcher in pain and after she left I had two doctors come up to me and go look we got to give you something because I couldn't get on the MRI machine it hurt too bad I, I was like screaming it was that bad and they're like look we're sober guys you're not going to break your sobriety if we give you like two grains of morphine I'm like okay and they did and I'm sitting there reading a book or a magazine, my wife comes in and she goes, what happened? I go, what do you mean? She goes, you look happy. I've never seen you look like that. I was comfortable in my own skin. I go, honey, get a good look because you're probably never going to see it again. You know, it just is what it is. There's been, as, as you probably know, there's been so much research into genetic connections and, and that certain people have the gene and certain people don't and i'm pretty convinced of it and my eldest daughter does i never thought she had the gene she doesn't she's got her own issues but just not drugs or alcohol my baby who's 16 who's having issues right now about lying and uh hiding vapes with nicotine and pot in them and we're just finding this out our little honor roll golden child we're just literally finding this out over the last couple of months. I thought she had the gene from the two years old. She just more, more, more. How much? What do you want? More. I want more of everything. 
And it's all about me, 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 and more, more, more. And that's kind of the alcoholic mind in, in action. So, yeah, as a kid, I just I drank. I started smoking pot. I seriously started smoking pot when I was nine years old. Wow, bloody hell. I started smoking cigarettes when I was 10. Pack a day by the time I was 15, 16. Far out. Shot up speed when I was 13. Started shooting up heroin when I was uh, 16, 17. I dealt drugs. Uh, my brother died of an overdose when I was 12. I was raped and beaten when I was by men when I was eight. And my dad left when I was six. So there's a lot of scar tissue there and a lot of things that I think a lot of times people are born with a predisposition, but they don't succumb to it as far as addiction, alcoholism goes. But I'm a textbook case. I was ready for it because I was just trying to deaden the pain. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, Gabor Mate says, not why the addiction, but why the pain. It's such a, oof. wow, that is so full on, so full on. Okay, so the drugs or the alcohol was deadening the pain of the trauma of the things that you had, had gone through. Also, something else, just when your wife said, oh, you look happy, you look different, you look happy. In general, do you have, like, do you find happiness? Do you feel happiness in general? Oh, now I'm very happy. It's just like always an edge to me. And you know what? That edge is more than partly responsible for helping me be successful in life. And being able to fight through all those circumstances and to have success and to have that tenacity and perseverance that I learned from being the son of, of a single mom. And I'm very grateful for all of that. But unfortunately, as you get older and your life around you changes, those triggers that used to drive you on, anger, rage, just focus to the point that it's hard to play nice with others when you're like that. And put it mildly. And I, uh, I've learned to go back through therapy and deal with my triggers. And it's something that's, it's a work in progress for sure. But I've been to answer your question. I'm extremely happy and I love where I'm at. I love my family. I love my band. I love doing what I do. I'm grateful for it. I've been playing bands as a living for over 30 years, Everclare's 30 years, but I don't take it for granted. I'm very grateful for it. Gratitude, willingness, openness is something that's very, very important to me. Yeah, wow. So with that amount of trauma that you'd been through, Art, that's just so full on. And I just like when you're telling me that and even talk before you even mentioned the trauma, just all the things that you'd mentioned that you'd done at such a young age. I'm just thinking, oh, what was going on for this little guy? Like what was happening? For little him? baby, little boy. Oh, yeah. yeah. So sad. I don't know if you have kids, but I have children. And the idea, you, you do, the idea of someone raping my child at eight years old, I never told my mom. Because my mom was a single woman living in a, we lived in a housing project. We had to live in a housing project because my dad wouldn't pay child support. He wouldn't help support his family. He moved to the other side of the country and married a younger woman and, and raised her family. She had two kids. And I don't begrudge him that, but still, I mean, it's like my mom had a gun underneath her mattress, you know, 
And we're in America. It's the wild, wild west. If I had told her what happened to me, she would have killed those boys. I have no doubts about it. And not that I condone violence, but as a parent, you understand it. <laughs> it's just, it's reprehensible. I'm just grateful, really, for a lot of that damage because it's helped me be me. It's helped me become the person that I changed my life. I grew up on a housing project and I'm not like a superstar, but I've done really well. All my guys that work for me all own houses. I do really well. I put my daughters through school and I'm setting up a different life than what I had at, at a certain level for them and hopefully teaching them to be grateful for it and not to take it for granted. Yeah, wow. Gosh, oh, you brought me to tears. Also, where you felt like you kind of had to protect mum as well, even though you were going through that and what you'd been through, but you were putting mum first before yourself. Mm. Has that been a lifelong pattern for you as well, to put others before yourself? You know, I mean, as a parent, and I'm sure you would agree to this, the last thing you want any child to do is to have to be the parent in any, any situation, right? I've never had it with my two kids because I've been pretty adamant about being the dad and being the adult in the situation and being someone that they can depend on. And I could always depend on my mom, but I knew that either she or my brother, who was fresh out of jail, he was in and out of jail and prison and mental hospitals and until he ultimately died of an overdose. He had been shot. He had bullet holes in him, and we had a rough life. We had a rough life. When he died, I was very into sports and, and doing well in school, and you would think that a situation like that would have driven me away from it, but I actually started acting more like him and, and became more entrenched in drugs, alcohol, and criminal activity, really. Because I wanted to be like my brother, my big brother. Because I didn't have a, a fatherly role model. I had him. I had my brother-in-law, who was an alcoholic and a drug addict. That's what I had. So it's interesting to see, as a life coach, I'm someone who's been through a lot of therapy. And I promised my mom I'd go back and get my college degree. So I'm about a year and a half away from getting my psychology degree. Oh, wow. But at this point, I'm not. I'm going to try and get it done. I. Last thing I want to do is be a psychologist. <laughs> I like my I like I like my job I have now. You've got a pretty successful music career. I don't know if you'd probably need to, but it's great to learn, isn't it? It's great to learn other things. It's a lot harder than it was when I was a kid, I'll tell you that. The brain and the synapses learning, it is great to learn and it's it's wonderful and fun, but it's harder. It's a lot harder. And yeah. I also I got diagnosed about eight years ago with multiple sclerosis. I have MS. And yeah, and I've been touring with that. And I do medication and physical therapy and diet, all sorts of things. But that's been another challenge as well. And it's also a challenge that as a sober guy, man, if I was still drinking and using, I just don't know how bad it would be. But I think because I'm clean and sober and I live a pretty clean life, I'm able to manage it. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah, wow, amazing. Yeah. 
so we've sort of got up to about where you were 16 and by this stage you've kind of used everything and doing everything. Getting to the point where it was getting unmanageable, what did that look like for you? Well, it wasn't unmanageable at that time. It was still pretty fun. I started playing guitar when I was 14. Started playing in bands when I was 16. I dealt drugs. I worked regular jobs. I dealt drugs. I did a lot of drugs. Played in bands. And it all came to a head when I was about 22. I was up one night with some kind of drug friends and a bunch of people I didn't know. And I put, I shot a bunch of cocaine into my arm that was way too much. And I overdosed at about three o'clock in the morning in this house in this bad neighborhood in, in Orange County, which is south of LA. And the people that were lived there ran outside just freaking out because there was a guy flopping around on their floor, right? And just luckily, next door, the the guy was an EMT. So basically worked for the fire department. They basically were the rescue, right? They were like ambulances. And he had come home to use the bathroom and he ran in and he took those electronic defibrillators and restarted my heart and brought me back because I had I've been out for a minute, minute and a half. And uh, yeah, it changed a lot for me. And so I stopped using drugs after that night, but I didn't stop drinking. But I, I got into, uh, I had some episodes of panic attacks and drug flashbacks and was hospitalized. And that was all in 1984 when I was 22. And I spent the next five years not using drugs anymore, but just really drinking like lethal amounts of alcohol. Like I would black out for days. I'd black out for days. I just disappear. And when we moved to San Francisco, I started writing my own songs and playing them, starting bands and building up like followings and bands in LA, then moved to San Francisco and one afternoon, I remember leaving work and stopping at a bar, and I saw two, this is like 3.30 in the afternoon, I left work early because I didn't feel good, so I wanted to go drink. And I uh, saw a couple punk rock looking girls sitting at a table in this old bar, and I went up to them, and that's all I remember until Sunday morning, and that was Wednesday afternoon, Sunday morning, I wake up in bed, my bed in my house with one of those girls next to me and my wife five feet away sitting on the floor crying with oh. her face in her eyes. She'd been looking for me for three days, going to morgues, going to where, you know, dead people are looking, trying to see if I was dead or not. And that was my bottom. That's when I hit bottom. I got up, I got the girl up, put her in a cab. Two weeks earlier, I was in a record store down near downtown San Francisco, and this guy was like staring at me, and I, I noticed it, and, I'm, and I finally went up to him, I go, um, why are you staring at me, man? I'm not gay, just so you know. Nothing personal, that's cool, but I'm not gay. He's like, no, I'm not gay either, I just, 
I was just looking at you because you remind me of me. I go, you're probably younger than I am. What do you mean remind you of you? He goes, no, you remind me of me five years ago. I go, okay, I'll bite. What happened five years ago? He goes, I got sober. I go, so you think I'm an alcoholic? And he goes, no, I don't think you're an alcoholic. I'm pretty sure you're an alcoholic. I know you're an alcoholic. And he goes, you don't ever have to drink again. You don't have to live like you live. You don't have to feel like you feel. If you ever want to go to a meeting, I'd love to take you to a meeting because it works if you work. It really does. And I, I'm like, I'm offended. But deep inside, I thought he was right. Even though I had been to meetings, I had lied about that, told people I had six months sober or nine months sober and totally lied over the distance between 84 and 89. But uh, he told me that and it stayed with me. He gave me his phone number and I ripped it up as I walked out the door and showed him and threw it away. Jerk thing to do, but I'm an alcoholic. And so that morning, after I put her in the uh, cab, she turned out she was a prostitute. I went downtown and went down to that record store at like 11 o'clock in the morning. And he was there opening the store. And I'm like, hey, man, do you remember me? He goes, yeah, you're Art. I go, that's right. You're Michael, right? And he goes, yeah. You said you would take me to a meeting if I thought, if I came to the decision that I thought I was an alcoholic and powerless. And he goes, awesome, man. You know what? I'd get off work at five o'clock, meet me back here. I go, fuck that. You said you were going to take me to a meeting. I need to go to a meeting right now. That aggressiveness came out of me. No, you said you're going to take me to me. I need to go to one right now. He just looks at me, looks at the gal that's working at the store with him and goes, I'm going to be gone. I'll see you later. And uh, he took me to three meetings and then he passed me off to some other people I met and went to another two meetings. And sometime in that third meeting, it finally hit me that I was powerless and I couldn't function. I, I couldn't control. I couldn't make the decision not to drink. It was just for, for real alcoholics, for real addicts, it's not about willpower. It's not about making the decision, making the choice. The choice that I made was to live. And the only way I can live is by working a program of honesty, of strength, experience, strength, and hope. That's the only thing that works for me. That's the only thing I've seen work for anybody who's a real alcoholic. There's people who have drinking problems. My bass player, Freddie, he's okay with me talking about this. He, hasn't, he had a drinking problem. He stopped drinking and dealt with those problems through therapy and rational thought. And that worked for him. That wouldn't work for me. And there's different types of people with different types of issues that make them drink and use. But in my experience, when you're a hardcore old school alcoholic, whether you're a male, female, doesn't matter what race you are, how rich you are, how poor you are, it's the great leveler. That disease is the great leveler. It makes everybody equal and which is bad news for some people but for me it's good people it's good news it's i have an equal shot of being healed as long as i do the work and i do the work
Powerful. Powerful stuff. Unbelievable. And what an angel that guy was. And to go out on a limb like that to reach out to someone. I never incredible. I never saw him again, Danny. What? Never saw him again. Mm, unbelievable. Angel? Maybe. Maybe. In the program, we call the person that gets you to sobriety. We call him our Eskimo. He was my Eskimo. Oh, wow. So amazing. He found me out in the tundra and brought me in. Unbelievable. So amazing. Thank God for him. I've got a question separate to this, going back to when you OD'd. When you were gone, did you cross over? I don't remember. I it, I just blacked out. I believe that there's this isn't the only world we live in. I don't. I believe that, but either I didn't see anything, or I just, for whatever reason, don't remember it because I wasn't supposed to. Because I was supposed to come back. Yeah. I was yeah. supposed to be here for a reason. I've had two daughters since then, and I think that's a large part. I've I've made music that's inspired people through the grace of God. My God, by the way, is a man. He doesn't have a penis. My God, my God is pure love. That's what God is to me. Pure energy, pure love. And that's my higher power. And I'm glad I didn't die. I wish my brother hadn't died, but maybe... Maybe his soul needs a, a restart, recharge, you know. Perhaps. And, yeah, perhaps it all helps you to get to where you're going and having this conversation right now, helping who knows who. When you stopped taking the drugs, so obviously that was numbing so much and then you removed the drugs so the alcohol is numbing all of that pain and all of that trauma that was there for you. So when you stopped with the alcohol, what happened with all that trauma then? Well... When I stopped doing the drugs, I started having anxiety, depression. I started seeing therapists. And there would be periods of lucidity in that five years where I wouldn't drink maybe for a week or two. Oh, I got this. I can I can stop anytime. Yeah, I couldn't. But uh, I could take it pretty well. I think the therapy and the things I learned while working my way towards sobriety when I did achieve sobriety, yeah, I started having anxiety attacks again. And uh, I was on antidepressants for about eight months and got off them. And haven't been on any medication since then. Other than medication to keep me alive from my MS, you know. <laughs> Incredible. So what was it like for you at the start? So you've gone to meetings and obviously you were drinking a hell of a lot. How did it look for you early on, like early days? How did you get through the, if you can, you know, recall those initial cravings or triggers that would show up for you? How did you do that? Well, to be honest with you, for about two years, I was going to meetings religiously, regardless where I was, because I was touring in different bands. I owned a record label. I was um, producing other bands and I didn't drink or use drugs, but after about a year or two of that, I started using sex as a, as a drug. And I've been married four times. It's not an accident. It's because of bad choices I was making. Because even though I wasn't drunk or high, my alcoholic mind, my reptilian, what I call my reptilian alcoholic mind, was still making decisions for me. Not good decisions. I left a lot of blood in the water. I left a lot of hurt people in my life. And uh, I've gone back and 
fifth step and and eighth step a lot of people of just making amends and reparations whenever necessary and it's something i continue to do it's a non-stopping because sometimes i'll remember stuff that i didn't remember before and then i'll have to act on it but by doing that and by going through and following those steps it says at the beginning of chapter five rarely have we seen anyone fail who follows these steps and it's true i've never seen anyone fail who actually follows them a lot of people don't want to do the work and and the result is nil unfortunately so i'm just grateful now in my life that early sobriety was pretty good you know i, I went through a divorce where it got weird was when I got things started happening a couple of years later with Everclear. We got signed and put out a record. We're a big local band, big regional band, toured the country, but we hadn't had that big hit yet. Santa Monica, our first hit single hadn't come out. And after that came out, I wasn't going to meetings very much. Every now and then I would, but I was pretty much using sex, anger, power, control, regret, shame, a lot of shame. I would use those as alternative drugs because they all create dopamine. They all make the, the synapses fire. And I became very dependent on those. And then it seems like every 10 years or so, I realize what's going on and I start going to meetings. I've done the steps three times. I'm in the midst of doing them again right now for the fourth time. And I'm getting like 100,000% more out of it than I ever have before. And I'm 62 years old. You'd think by now I'd be able to have a beer every now and then. Can't do it. I know I can't do it. I'm still an addict. Candy, even chocolate. I just, I crave. I have cravings. And it's bad for me with my MS. I'm not supposed to eat sugar. Because it's, it's inflammatory, but it's something that I constantly work on. And I talked earlier about my daughter, and it's something that scares me about my daughter, about her addictive tendencies. And hopefully it's just a phase. You know, when she's 16, she's basically vaping, mostly nicotine. So she's like smoking, being rebellious at 16, which is normal. And... In the back of my mind, I'm afraid that there's more to it and that this is the beginning of a really hard journey for her. Do you talk to her? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. We, we pull no punches in our house. That's great. It's great yeah, to have that conversation. is pretty important, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, did you have times over the years, especially when the fame kicked in, where you felt triggered or you felt the desire or the urge to drink, especially when you weren't going to meetings so much? Sure. I've had those, but mainly when I've been depressed or things haven't been going good for me. When I got clean and sober in 1989, when I was 27, and I had that moment, I surrendered to that idea. And I've never, even though I haven't always worked a very strong program and I acted alcoholic-like in other ways, lying and cheating and not being a good guy. I never lost. I never believed 
that I wasn't an addict or an alcoholic. So that's always been foremost in my mind. So I'll get cravings and I'll be aware of them and I'll just, I'll be present with them and then I'll let them go away because I know what they are. They're my alcoholic mind. My alcoholic mind's never going to go away. I just want to get that clear to what you just said is really helpful for people. So you get the cravings and you let it in and you kind of, you're aware of it, that it's there. You're like, okay, there's the craving and you let it pass. Yeah. Well, it's like anything. It's like, it's like being present with your anger when you're angry. It's basically therapy 101. It's like you take what, what's bothering you, what's scaring you, what's hindering you, bring it in, feel those feelings and then let them go. You know, it's touch and go. I think that's so important for people to hear because that's often the problem here, that we're so scared of our feelings and we're scared of cravings that we could try and push them away and it makes them so much bigger. But when we just let them in and go, oh, here you are, okay, hello. Exactly. Yeah, they lose their power. Absolutely. That gives you the power. It takes the, the power of the fear of what you're saying is exactly right. And it's something when, with the people I work with my, in my practice, it's something we do is just mindfulness, presence, uh, breathing exercises, stuff like that before we start working on our time. I don't do therapy. I do coaching, but I also, I think to really, and you're a coach, so I don't know what your process is, but to me, when, to get the most out of any situation, I have to be in a place where my mind, my body, and my spirit all feel connected. Yeah. Amazing. And it's hard to do that when you drink. 100%. Yes. 100%. Yes. Let's say it's impossible to do that when you drink. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think once you can master this stuff, and this is one thing I love to talk to people about, not just with alcohol cravings or other cravings, but just emotions in general, when they show up and you can understand that they all pass and that they're not the big bad monster that we think they are sometimes, that we can just learn to accept we get so much control of our life back. So not just with the booze, but also just in general, like we become the driver of our ship, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially, yeah. And especially when you're talking about men, men tend to gravitate to anger. When they feel sad or vulnerable or scared, they turn it to anger because forever, it wasn't okay for men to be scared. It wasn't okay for men to be vulnerable. It wasn't okay for men to be gentle. You know what I mean? It's like men were taught, not verbally, but were taught by example that anger is our emotion. We get to show anger. And you know, that probably goes back to the hunter-gathering caveman age, and it's never changed, you know? And there's still plenty of men that walk into that. But that's a diminished life. I don't want a diminished life. I want a full life. And the way to have that is to be able to face the things that scare you and embrace them. And they always go away. Always, in my experience. Yeah, they do. They really do. Like for everyone listening here to this, like we promise you, if you sit with those emotions and if you just let them pass and let them process, they do go away. It's I think sometimes art, we could get stuck in that eternity thinking where we think this is never going to end and just trust in this yeah. process. Like if you look back on other times where you've had a hard time, it passes, it did pass and you've got a hundred percent success rate because you're here and it's good to remember that as well. 
that's a really good point. And you know, that brings to mind, Danny, is like, I was talking about triggers earlier. When I was younger, and I grew up in a housing project, there wasn't a lot of white kids where I grew up. And that's not a bad thing. It's just, I was different, right? I got picked on. It would have been way worse if I'd have been a black kid in a white neighborhood. That would have been way worse. But for me, being a little boy coming from a nice middle-class neighborhood, we moved to the housing project to government housing. I was getting beat up all the time and getting into fights. And I learned how to fight and how to use anger and intimidation to protect myself. And it came from fear. But those triggers, like when people would say something to me, I'd be like, what did you say to me? You know, I was a hair trigger person. I could flip from zero to eight, like in half a second. That scared people. Even growing up as a kid and as an adult, I, I used anger like that. But it wasn't really good for relationships and for marriages. That's not a good thing to have. But I didn't know I was using those triggers. I just thought I was like that and I was always going to be like that. And it's like that term you use that it was always going to be like that and I wouldn't be able to change. It's not. I consciously go back and have worked on those things and I've tried to make, and I've tried, I've made new triggers for myself now. When people show me anger or don't agree with me or, or rude or something, now I go to the trigger of pause. I take a pause. I take a breath. That's what we call it. I take a nice breath and I go. I and, and now I'll talk to them, talk to people and just go, you know, I don't want to go to an angry place. Let's just talk about this. You don't get angry. I don't get angry. It doesn't end badly. Let's talk about this. Because even at 62, I'm still kind of a scrapper, you know, or at least I, I think I am. <laughs> but by doing that in therapy, it's really, really helped me. I'm, I'm very grateful. I have a great therapist who's one of me. He's, he's been in the program for 18 years. And uh, I started seeing him in 2020 during COVID and lockdown and all the horrible political stuff that was going on in our country and in, in the United States. And I was starting to act out with anger and snapping at my wife and daughter. And my wife's like, you need to get into therapy now. You need to find a therapist and do it online. I'm like, okay. I didn't argue with her. I'm like, okay. And I found this therapist, but he was super booked up. But he, he met with me anyways. He didn't know who I was. And he's just like, look, I want to work with you and I'll take you on. I can give you an hour a week. But uh, my condition is that you have to get back into meetings you're an alcoholic and you know you're an alcoholic i go absolutely but the, how the hell am i going to do meetings it was on zoom danny i had no idea that people were doing zoom meetings and i called a friend of mine and he goes yeah i got this tuesday night meeting and it's a bunch of guys from the the music industry the entertainment industry and you can feel safe there your anonymity will be safe and i went to that meeting and they have about three or four meetings in our fellowship during the week but that tuesday night meeting was so special to me and now i'm the secretary of that meeting i run that meeting after after three and a half years so that's a big deal 
I'm very excited about that. That's so awesome. Yeah, well done. That's so great. And for people that are struggling, and especially if you've got anger issues or you've got a lot of stuff to deal with, I think for men especially, they find it hard to reach out and to seek the help of a therapist. What would you say to those guys, Art, that are feeling that resistance? They feel too manly to go out and, and ask for help. There's so many men that I find don't want to go to therapy. What have you got to say well, to them? You know, I mean, what I say to people, it's really hard. I mean, look, people are not going to be, especially men, we learn by example. We don't learn by talking. Women, I think, can talk things out and they want to hear everything and figure all that out. Because women are more intelligent than men, pretty much. <laughs> but in my experience, men need to see it. And it's just like, to me, I'd be like, yeah, man, I was getting in fights. I was doing all this stuff. I was scaring my wife uh, and people around me. And a lot of men sometimes would go, so what'd you do about it? Dude, I got into therapy and I started working it. And does that really work? Is it just like telling people, have people analyzing you? I go, it's not, man. You need to stop watching movies. <laughs> you know, that's not what it's about. It's about working with somebody who has worked with other people. And even though we're all unique, we're not all that different. We're the same species. And if you're going to learn something, why start from zero when you can use someone who has knowledge and start at eight and learn the things and processes and exercises that can make you happier. Like, do you know what EMDR is? Yeah. EMDR works for me, works for my daughter. My daughter has anxiety and OCD and, and depression. She uses that guy on my crew. I hooked him up with my therapist. He uses EMDR. And I've taught it to a couple of guys, roughly, you know, just tapping and stuff like that. And guys that are like, big burly biker looking dudes and it's so funny that once you open your mind to the fact that you don't know everything you can learn but if you think you know everything you can't learn anything and guys it's not about being arrogant it's about being scared we're not we we haven't been allowed to be vulnerable and to learn you need to be vulnerable. You need to be open and willing. And that's a lot of work for a lot of guys. But I think it's changing. I think every generation, for the most part, gets closer and closer. So I think the kids today are not the same generation that, you know, I'm a grandpa to these guys. So it's like, it's different. But I see guys my own age in the rooms, in the program, still making the same mistakes that they were making 20, 30 years ago. And uh, yeah, it's hard to watch sometimes. Yeah. Wow, it's so powerful what you just said. In order to learn, you need to be vulnerable. And that's so true. You have to be vulnerable. You can't learn anything if you think you know it all. And, yeah, and that, I think it's essential if you want to get well, you have to do the work. You just have to. And what you were talking about, the eye movement desensitization and re reprocessing, the EMDR is super powerful stuff. And particularly for people who have had like a trauma, like a trauma. Yeah. PTSD is fantastic. So for people listening, if you're wondering what that is, I've talked about it a bit on the podcast, but it comes up a lot. It's a great process and people get a lot from it. And it is about dealing with trauma. And I've done it like 
with lights and an electric Im impulses and stuff like that. There's different ways to do EMDR. Most men I know that are really angry and people that are really angry and hurt and act out are dealing with some sort of trauma. Working with someone to find that trauma, like a lot of times with clients of mine as a coach, they'll be dealing with stuff and I'll be like, you know what? That's above my pay grade. You need to take that up with your therapist and tell them that I recommend that there's some sort of trauma exposure like EMDR or DVT or something like that. And, but I don't try to treat people. I'm not a therapist. That would be wrong. But I do learn exercises and I have studied different things that I can teach people to help them um, a little bit. But I'm like, you need to go to a therapist and really um, expunge and expose, bring the light of day to that trauma that happened to you. Like when I got raped, I've been working on that and I've gotten so much better for it. I wrote a song on an album that came out in 2015 called You. It's about that experience. And I knew when I wrote that and played it, and it's a great song, I knew then that and I told my band, we're never going to play that song. I don't ever need to sing that song. Right now, it's there. I'm never going to play it because I don't need to go back there. Because for me to really, really bring out a lot of those songs that are, are autobiographical for me, I have to get in contact with that kid, either my 20s or teens or when I was eight or whatever, you know, and it's exhausting and draining. And I don't mind doing it with songs that have light at the end of the tunnel, but some songs don't, some stories don't. Yeah, well. yeah thank you, Art. That's so amazing. I'm so appreciative of your time. And and just in closing, if you could go back in time, and I'm, I'm worried to say this because in light of what you just said, but if you could go back in time and speak to your eight-year-old self, what would you say to him? I did it. I did it. It's even in the song where it's like, I have to be like a father to that eight-year-old child inside of me. I have to be the father that my father wasn't man enough to be there. Because a large part of being a parent, as you know, is being there, not just physically here, present. I'm away from my daughter all the time, but I'd FaceTime with her every day, my teenager. And I just said goodnight to her a couple hours ago because they're on different time. <laughs> they're 17 hours behind us, I think. I've done that constantly. I've gone back to the different people in my life or the different me's and that have trauma that went through a, a breakup or or a betrayal or something I did where I did that. And I try to do what a parent would do. Embrace, understand, be still, be quiet, and let it pass through both of us. Healing these exercises, as I'm sure you know, can be. And it's a blessing for sure. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing and very powerful stuff. Oh, well, Art, thank you so much. And so you're in Australia. How much longer are you in Australia for doing your solo tour? We've got tomorrow we fly to Sydney. We've got two shows in Sydney, a show in Wollongong and a show in Newcastle. And then 
a week from today, the 26th, we fly home. Oh, amazing. And then your band Everclear, are they touring? What's happening? More music coming out? Constantly touring in the States. Um, we have almost 100 shows to do this year. And then we're putting out a uh, 30th anniversary of our first major record, Sparkle and Fade, which was a big, big album here in uh, Australia back in the 90s. And uh, so we'll be back to tour on that in November of 2025. Oh, amazing. I'll definitely be at one of those shows. And and thank you so much. And obviously we had a friend in common, Mugger, who uh, was also my husband's sound. Yeah, isn't he beautiful? He's such a beautiful man. And oh, your husband in a band? Yes, he's a musician. And actually, the, when he first quit drinking, uh, Ash was offered the writer and they were giving it to Mugger, the sound engineer. Yeah, and anyway, they went up to Mugger and said, oh, what does Ash want to drink? And then he said, We'd only, Ash had only been sober for two weeks. And Mugger said, oh, Ash doesn't drink. And as soon as Ash heard, oh, Ash doesn't drink, he said, oh, I don't drink. And then he said from then on, I just made it easy for him. He just got it in his mind. Oh, I just don't drink. So so Mugger was a very important part of Ash's sobriety as well. So that was really fantastic. But it was really cool because he was saying to me yesterday when he was organizing this, he listens to this podcast and even though he's still drinking, it helps him realize that I don't have to drink all the time or it just he likes to hear the stories and he finds them inspiring. So not everyone listening to this podcast is actually sober. And I found that really inspiring to hear that from him as well and that all of our stories can make a difference to people no matter where they are. Absolutely. And Andrew's one of those people that I wouldn't classify as an alcoholic or even a problem drinker. He's what we call a normie. I don't know about that, but yeah. <laughs> I've seen him pretty wasted. <laughs> no, no. That doesn't mean he doesn't get wasted. There's a difference. And like my wife is a total normie. But she's had a few, few drinks a couple of times, you know, <laughs> because the window opens up. And I like that window. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So funny. All right. Art Alexakis, thank you so much for your time. You're just amazing. You're so inspirational. And I really appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty and just for sharing your story with the How I Quit Alcohol audience. Thanks, Art. See you soon. Bye.